Hey everybody, I am here with the creator of one of my favorite games, Tom Hap. How you doing? Hello. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's uh, I'm really excited to be able to talk to you, and I really think people are going to enjoy hearing directly from the creator of, in my opinion, genuinely one of the best Metroidvanias out there ever. Not modern, just one of my favorite ones that I've ever played. So thank you for, for making something so amazing. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, now, I, the special edition of the game, uh, the first one, came with like a DVD or something, I believe, with an, a full interview and a backstory and all of that stuff. So uh, I'm, I don't think everybody listening is going to have heard that. So maybe we could just kind of go over your origin story a little bit uh, just to bring everybody up to speed on this. But you made the first Axiom Verge all by yourself, including the graphics and the music and everything, right? Uh, that's right. So how does somebody even start to begin an undertaking like that? Have you done game design in the past? Uh, are you a professional musician? Or uh, I, I was a, a game developer. I was a programmer. Um, um, I had been a programmer and an animator uh, at various points um, in my career. I worked for EA and I worked for uh, Petroglyph Games. And uh, um, I had also basically always been like working on my own hobby projects the whole time. Uh, like, you know, even before, even when I was in college, I was doing that kind of thing. Uh, so no, I was never a professional musician and I don't have any like real music training. I took a, a class once, uh, in MIDI, um, in college. And that's, that's about the extent of my professionalism as far as music goes. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely a uh, imposter when it comes to music. Well, I mean that's that's the beautiful thing about any kind of art is if somebody likes it, you've won. It doesn't really matter. There is no such thing as an imposter. If you made something people like, that's it. It's for real. So, um, I think the music is one of the things that you know a really good game doesn't need the best music, but having good music with it just adds so much to the 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 atmosphere and the ambiance of everything and especially uh, especially when different parts of a game have a different feel just in gameplay and then you change the music to match that uh, when you were writing the music for axiom verge one and i guess two as well did you always have that in mind of you know uh, as you're designing a level you had a feel for the music or did one come first um usually the like I had an idea of what the music would be, but generally I did the level design first. And, um, and then to some degree, uh, like I would do the artwork for the levels first. And then um, I would come up with the music that I thought should go with that artwork. Uh, and then when I was actually developing the game or, you know, like doing the game design and, and putting it all together, I would, a lot of times be like, hmm, I don't think this song fits with this one and end up switching a couple of, of tracks here and there. Uh, so by the end, they might not be the original tracks that I had planned. That's pretty cool, though. I mean, the, the fact that you kind of had a sense of where you're going through it. Uh, I mean, you could definitely tell. Um, I don't I'm terrible with names. I don't I don't remember any song names and anything like that, but I remember the different parts of the game. There was one that had a very distinctive feel to it um, in Axiom Verge 1. And in this, the second one, uh, the music, I liked how it was kind of different versions of the same song, depending on, on what part of the area that you were in and all of that stuff. It was it was very cool that you had the, the vision of the feel of the song as you're going through all that. And... Um, so I guess between the two games, did you do anything differently from from a composition point of view, both in music and in level design for the second one? Because I thought the first one, you, had, you nailed the formula. And I was wondering, is the second one going to be like just an extension of the first, which would have been fine, but it definitely had a slightly different feel because of the drone mechanics and everything. Um, yeah, like I, I for the second game... Um... You know, I, I had a choice of like whether I could should just sort of like reskin the first game um, and, you know, sort of like make, you know, basically like a ROM hack of the first game, which is what a lot of sequels seem to be. Um, or I could make something different. And I was so tired of the first game that for the second one, I just 
I was like, well, let's see how different I can make it and still be uh, part of the same universe, you know, and still feel like the same, uh, like it belongs, you know, with the Axiom Verge name. So uh, that's kind of was my philosophy there. And I was thinking about like, you know, what game sequels should I use as my reference? And like, if you think of uh, like, for example, like in Tomb Raider, the sequels are, are kind of like reskins of the original. Um, you know, they, they did a reboot and then, and then the reboot sequels were kind of like the same as the original, but in different locales. Um, but then there's series like Zelda where like uh, the second game is a side scroller. It's completely different from the first one. Um, you know, uh, Super Mario Brothers 2 is not even a Mario game to begin with. Um, uh, so it's it's completely different. But the, even then, like Mario 3 and Mario 4, uh, they change so much about them with like the raccoon suit and the, um, the cape. Uh, and I thought it would be better to take that route where like I basically change as much as I can and you know gets get some depth so that when if people feel like uh you know they need to play an Axiom Verge one type of game, they can play Axiom Verge one. Um and Axiom Verge two would be you know a, a whole different thing and not just like a repeat. Yeah, that makes perfect sense because you don't really the stories tie in, but you don't need to play one in order to play two. So it's it kind of it's a perfect fit that way. It's not like you you have to it, you have to go through the evolution. You could just kind of pick up either one. But the story is pretty incredible. So I hope people do play them in order just to get that, that sense of it. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, you know that was kind of the idea. You know, I knew that like with indie games basically like 99% of people haven't played your game always so uh, you know I did that that was also another thing I was thinking of was like how can I make this this game be kind of independent from the first game so that people can pick up one or the other and not feel like they missed out on something that makes sense um, now when you were porting the game to different platforms so Starting out, the game I think was released on PlayStation Four originally and PC, right? And then it Axiom Verge One was yeah, yeah, and then it eventually got released on the Wii U and then the Switch with the Multiverse Edition. Um, it, was there a different set of tools to write the second one? And then when you ported it to all these different platforms, was it? You know, I'm not a programmer; I'm just kind of a general nerd, so I, I'm always very curious as do you have to learn a completely different skill set every time you port it to a different platform? Or, um, you know, how do you kind of go about doing that? Um, so it's, it's going to be different for each game. I think, um, Axiom Verge is, is written, uh, using C sharp and, uh, uh, a, uh, set of libraries called mono game. Um, and those are, they're, they're sort of like meant they're written to be portable, but it means that uh, someone needs to port those libraries over first because I don't have that ability. Um, and uh, so for like the Vita and the Nintendo Switch, I hired Sickhead Games to do the ports. Actually, Sony hired Sickhead Games to do the Vita port. And uh, Sickhead Games came up with this system that can basically cross compile C sharp to C plus plus. And then they were able to take that and use that to, uh, create a compiler that also worked for Xbox and Nintendo switch. Um, and, uh, they later got it working with PlayStation four too, um, which it didn't have that at the time that I did it. Um, so, uh, it's, it's kind of like, the you don't have to repeat most of of what you do but there there's always like a whole bunch of pretty like detailed annoying um little things you need to change for for each platform and most thankfully for me most of that is on the shoulders of sickhead or whoever 
is porting the uh, the game engine, the mono game code. Um, but there's still stuff that like usually there's a problem with the shaders or you know uh, the way fo- games are saved or the way like trophies are handled or you know and that thing will change from platform to platform. That makes sense. So you always need to spend a, like a couple of months fixing up those differences. That was going to be my next question: is how long per platform does it usually take to make sure the port went overcorrect and to fix it? So a couple of months. It, yeah, it depends. Like, you know, uh, for instance, right now, um, uh, Sickhead is making their the PlayStation 5 uh, version of, of Mono Games so we can have Axiom Verge 2 be on PlayStation 5. And, uh, like, it's, it's basically getting those graphics libraries because they're not the same as PlayStation 4. So um, he's trying to get everything, uh, you know, nailed down. And that's that's taken a couple of months for him just to do that. Um, and that's before even having the game running. Um, and once, once he has the game running, like then there's going to be, you know, another, I would expect like a couple of months where we're like trying to get the, uh, you know, the, the new controller features and, um, any changes to the trophy system and, and whatever else, uh, nailed down. And it's, yeah, and it's there's something like that for every platform. That makes sense. Um, the one thing that I definitely noticed between the three playthroughs that I did, Wii U, Switch for the first one, and then Switch for the second, is I never once had a problem with controller latency. And I even found out I was testing out a new controller when I was playing Axiom Verge 2, and I didn't have any problems whatsoever, and I switched over to a different game and went wait a minute, this controller's got like two or three frames of latency. How come I didn't notice with Axiom Verge? So what did you do? Or, or did you even have controller latency in mind? Because however the game is programmed, it was snappy and it felt great no matter what controller I ended up using. Um, yeah, there. it's it, it's down to, I think, uh, like the core engine, like how, you know, however... Uh, mono game is implementing it at heart uh so like you know that layer is it's pretty minimal it has stuff to like read the joysticks and then it's up to me to like do what i do with them and there's no i don't put any uh there's no latency game side between that it's always 60 frames per second um and uh yeah so there won't be a delay there there are sometimes um, like for instance, it, uh, in the PlayStation four, um, I, uh, when I remember during development, um, I had the rendering set up to like render immediately without even like waiting. There's like, you're, you're actually supposed to, before you like, uh, render the screen, like s- swap the, the back buffer over and I was not, there was some error in there where it wasn't doing that. Um, and I actually like ended up having to delay a frame or I guess the default behavior is to delay a frame from what you're doing. But before I did that, when the player jumped around, like the drill and like the bullets and other effects would be like one frame behind, they'd always be lagging behind the guy, Hmm. uh, because uh, actually the input was happening faster than the rendering was happening. Um, so, you know, I know that there's at least one frame of latency just because of that. <laughs> I mean, that that's actually very fast for a modern game. One frame of buffered latency for that. I've seen... I've seen it all over the place and there, there's some people who do controller latency tests for modern fighting games and it's very strange to see the, the wide swings between consoles and how much latency there is. And for a game like this, that's something that, you know, a lot of people that would play this were probably people that also played other Metroidvania styles and all of the consoles that didn't have a frame buffer built in, it was just direct video output. You're used to those snappy controls and you're not, you know, any kind of lag would mess with a lot of people anytime they're doing some kind of jumping or planning your moves. And I just never felt that in any of the Axiom Verge games. Yeah. Well, they're meant to, you know, feel like a, a, like a, a traditional console where it's all in ROM, you know, and, and the thing is just 
pretty much constantly rendering. You have no control over when it outputs to the screen because it's always going to do it um, at exactly the same point in the vertical refresh cycle. Uh, so, you know, I, I try to make it feel like that as much as I can. Yeah, well, you succeeded. <laughs> I'm very sensitive to input lag, so I could, you definitely succeeded in that one. Um, now, how did you end up choosing the resolution of the game? Was it to fit a, a mobile screen, or is it just the retro style that you wanted to, to choose? Um, yeah, the resolution is always difficult with um, anything with pixel art, because if you get it, if it doesn't divide evenly into the display scale, um, you, you will get artifacts and you'll see like pixels shifting size as you're running along and you're scrolling. Um, so like Axiom Verge 1 got its resolution from the Vita's resolution because uh, I knew going into it that it had to work on the Vita. So, um, you know, it was some multiple of that. I've, I can't remember. It was like 472 four by 544 or something. No, what am I thinking? 960 by 540. Um, I forgot what it was as well. Anyway. I've been doing some experiments with playing it on CRTs. So I remember finding out exactly what it was for that reason. But Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it was, it was some multiple of that. And then that divided easily into HD, but not so well into 720p. Um, and then on, on Nintendo Switch, uh, which is 720p, I was afraid it was going to look wrong so uh what we tried to do we tried to do at first was to scale the game in the software to 720p first and like come up with like some intelligent scaling algorithm and it looked horrible um so then we were just like i guess we're just outputting at 1080p and the switch does what it does and when you do it that way it looks fine i don't know how it does like what what kind of mathematics they're doing in there to make it look, but it looks way better than if you scale it yourself. So, um, and then for, for Axiom Verge 2, uh, there wasn't a Vita in there. So I was like, well, maybe I can get it to look even better on the Switch. So then I based everything on the Switch's resolution, like once once I found out what it was, because I was actually already developing the game uh, before the Switch came out. And... Uh, um, waiting to find out what the specs were and then once they were <clears throat> once they were out i made it basically a third of of what 720p is so it was like 436 by 240 um and then that has the inverse problem it doesn't it doesn't scale up to uh 1080p perfectly so i have the option to put a border um but if you have 4k um, and you're on a PlayStation Pro or higher that can do that, then it fits perfectly and it doesn't need the black border. Yeah, that um, resolution scaling is the bane of all retro gamers' existence who wants to play on a flat panel TV. So um, the, the website spends quite a lot of time talking about scalers, so uh, I think everybody listening yes. to this is going to feel your pain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and like not to mention like CRTs and four by three aspect ratio. I, I didn't even consider that cause it's just, it's too much uh, complexity to try to solve. Uh, yeah. So the games are both inherently 16 by nine, right? They are. Yeah. Cause I did a couple of experiments playing them both on CRTs and I always just put it in the 16 by nine mode. So black bars in the top and bottom. And I'm lucky enough to have mm -hmm. a couple of widescreen CRTs cause I'm a giant nerd. So I have a pile of them over yeah. there and it was, um, oh, yeah. it was really cool. There weren't too many of them. Like I, I had a Sony one like back in the day and it was ginormous. Yeah. And it was only 30 inches, but it was like a hundred pounds. Me, I don't know if you can over. see that, but that is my wall of CRTs over there. People I'll try to drop a video in the chat, but yeah, I have everything mm -hmm. from professional broadcast monitors to consumer grade and everything in between. And I was playing uh, Axiom Verge on each one of the uh, Axiom Verge 2 on each style, at least, just to get a sense. And I was really impressed mm -hmm. that, like, I loved all of them because there's some scenarios where, you know, oh, this game definitely feels better on a CRT. Most N64 games are actually like that, in my opinion. But some mm -hmm. games just felt more at home on a CRT. Others look way better on a beautiful OLED. And this one just looked great on all of them. I played it on a, a CRT. It felt like an old school game. I played it on the OLED. It felt like a modern game. It was just, uh, it was very cool to see the, the artwork look the same, but so different on each type of display that you use it on. 
Um, when you're thinking about pixel art and stuff like that, do you ever consider like OLED versus LCD and I guess plasma for people that still has that and how it would change? Or do you kind of just keep like the 10 foot view of it's going to be a little bit different. So stick to my artistic intent. Yeah, I, I, I don't worry about it too much. You know, um, uh, my, my computer monitor monitors are calibrated. However, they're calibrated. And, uh, um, you know, the, the closest I do is like, I, I play test it on the switch and make sure it looks good on that display. Um, and, uh, and that's that, that's my benchmark, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah. And I, I mean, I know it's going to look different on, on different displays and, uh, there is some, you know, I guess like magical, whatever the raw RGB value is that I guess is the real way it is that maybe there's some display out there that shows it uh, according to whatever standard dictates how that should look. Um, but I don't know what it is. I mean, it looked great. So whatever you did, keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> um, the The other thing about pretty much all video games for me is if it has no story at all, but it's a fun game, I still enjoy it. But when it has a really good story, there's something about that. Like if I find myself not skipping through cutscenes or text, it, it, at least in my opinion, adds to the experience. And I really enjoy the story of both. And you got real deep in there quite a few times for different subjects and especially the multiverses and all of that. Um, how, how did you even begin writing something like that? Or is this just always a concept that you've kind of tooled around with when you were thinking and daydreaming? Uh, it's, it basically begins as an outline for me. I mean, I guess part of it is like me daydreaming and then, you know, coming up with a general outline of like how I think, uh, the series of games c should go. And, you know, I, I put in the history in there, uh, to keep my, you know, my, my writing consistent. Um, uh, and it can be hard at times to like, make sure like basic things that, you you wouldn't consider like just making sure like what like why is this character there does it even make sense that this character is doing this thing um and uh like figuring out like oh how do i make sure that this one character is in this one place at this right time when like i also want this other thing to happen at this other time and they need to be there for that um and uh it can it can get convoluted and i don't think there's I don't know, maybe there's some writer out there who can use a flowchart to figure that out easily. But for me, it's basically a lot of like, right, you know, writing an outline, realizing things conflict with each other, um, you know, changing it. Um, or like, sometimes I leave the things that were bad in the outline and I put a note like, this can't happen because, uh, if it did, then this character would have never done this other thing. So then that wouldn't have happened. So blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. The, the concepts that you came, they, they all, they seem like they're all based on a mixture of, you know, of different theories of science and kind of some different, maybe religious beliefs. Maybe that's the wrong word to use, but there you get pretty deep there. I mean, is, is that something that you always intended or are you just it kind of evolved that way as you, as you envisioned this world or worlds, definitely, I should say, and how they interact. Uh, I mean, I'm, I mean, I definitely have my own like suspicions about um, uh, not, not religion, but I guess, you know, like the nature of physics and reality and that type of thing. And, uh, um, it felt like natural if I'm, if I'm making a game to like put some of that, you know, stuff in there in a science fiction kind of way, hmm. you know, um, uh, I think like I've had some people play the game and be like, Oh, this, this game is about warning of the evils of, of science and technology and how they'll destroy everyone. But it's not really like that. It's I just mean, that yeah, you certainly make the, a great point, are, but it's not about it's, that. <laughs> it's like those are the things that are interesting to me. So, like, that's how it comes to be in the game, you know, uh, as opposed to me, like, really trying to say, like, oh, yeah, like, uh, if you put too much 
if if we get too advanced in technology and you know an evil scientist is going to try and like take over the world with a pathogen that turns everyone into mutants yeah yeah i mean and i i also always loved entertaining the thought of you know what if the things that we know as deities are actually aliens or us from the future or you know it's i don't i certainly don't watch the show ancient aliens and think it's fact but i do like entertaining the idea of some of that stuff and how you tied it into the storyline and all of that seemed really neat it seemed very science fiction but but really routed in plausibility in that as long as you believed that these worlds exist this could actually interact like that yeah and i mean that's that's the thing i try to make it consistent with itself um i I, I think it's pretty implausible that anything would ever happen really the way they happen in the game. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I've seen in, in at least two like reviews, I'm always ending up reading the reviews and, uh, like people said the game had a lot of pseudoscience in it. And I was like, when I think of pseudoscience, I think of like, um, I don't know, like ancient aliens, like you said, like Bigfoot, that type of thing. And, uh, yeah, and I was like, I think there's a difference between like science fiction and pseudoscience. Um, yeah, they aren't even yeah. remotely close to the same thing. Pseudoscience <laughs> is somebody who's claiming that their wild, unproven idea is fact, and science fiction is, hey, let's all get on board and pretend that this exists, but because it's science-based, as long as we agree that this exists, all this other stuff is going to follow in a plausible manner. And that's, yeah, they're not even close to the same thing. <laughs> Huh. Yeah, so um, you know, it's uh, it, it would be cool if if my ideas come out to be true in some way, minus the the you know evil biomechanoid nanomachine monsters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, I yeah, I'm not like trying to say this is how it's how it is or has to be or any of those types of things. Yeah, but science fiction. It's, it's more about the characters. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the characters themselves the whole time are pretty interesting. I love the whole, uh, the first one where they're just dropped into that world. They don't know what's going on. And then, but the second one, it's, it's much more intentional. I'm going to go there to find out what's happening. I'm going to be there and now I'm stuck, but you know, now I'm going to get out. Like it's, there, there are also very human scenarios in that, you know, once again, science fiction, as, as long as you adhere to the, the laws of the world that you're in, I mean, it's, they're, they're very human things to have happened and, you know, fighting for your life. And that's why I always loved Super Metroid so much. I mean, Zelda A Link to the Past is my second favorite game, but there's a lot of like, let's go visit the townspeople and oh, isn't this some happy stuff and Super Metroid. It's <laughs> like everything's trying to kill you. You need to get off this planet and kill everything on there too. Like it's it's very cool. It's very spooky, right. and I get yeah. You're you're feeling what Samus is probably feeling like as you're playing it. Exactly, and I definitely got that feeling the first throughout the first game. There's a little bit more interaction in the second, but there's also a lot more suspicion in the second. In that you know, hey, I wonder is this a good character or a bad character? Are they going to help or are they going to turn on me? And it, it was it was pretty neat to have that as an aspect as well. I mean, I guess you had a little of that in the first one, too, but uh, I, it was just, I liked them both. They were just the same, but different, I guess. Um, and, and as as are the games themselves, I, I felt like, and I don't mean this in a good way or a bad way, I just mean this kind of just flat in that the both games were action, exploration, you know, Metroidvania, but the first one felt more action-focused, and the second one felt more exploration-focused. And I certainly love both of those, uh, but was that intentional or is that is that just kind of how it fell into place? Um, it, it, it was intentional. You know, uh, I like I said earlier, like I get tired of just doing the same old thing. And I think uh, like in the first game, I was I was in a phase where I was having a lot of nostalgia for like um, old shoot 'em up games and uh, running gun games where there's like a lot of different weapons and they all have flashy effects and that type of thing. And then, uh, for the second game, I was more kind of feeling like in a relaxed state, like, you know, uh, thinking of having more of that nostalgia, but for like horizon zero dawn or uh, breath of the wild or something where it's more like you're taking your time going through, 
this this world and you're exploring but it's not like every second is uh intense combat you know so um and i was you know you have to pick like what you you focus on when you're independent developer like i can't really have it be all of the things at once so i really did put most of my time into the exploration aspect yeah that was very cool and it's you know games come together when you have a combination of it being challenging, but you want to go back to it. You know, you don't just throw the controller down and go, this is bullshit. I don't even know how to get to this spot. Like, you know, when you explore around and you try to get to a corner or a ledge or something, and uh, that was especially one of the parts in the first Axiom Verge game where you could throw the drone and then teleport yourself there to get to that very high up ledge to get to the last part of the game. That, that was one of those things where... You know, every time I got to that section of the game, I'm going, how do I get up there? There's got to be a way. And then you finally get the power up and you're able to do it. That's it's such a satisfying feeling when you're able to figure out all the little all the little hidden things in the game, um, both part of the main storyline and stuff that you totally don't need to beat the game. But it's neat to find if you, you know, you get to that ledge or you get into that cave or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, how do you decide when you're making something like this, what is mandatory and, and what's the extras? Cause it's gotta be, I mean, these things take you years to make, so it's gotta get to the point where you're like, I don't want to put any more extras in. So enough with the extras, but you got quite a few in both. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, even before I begin deciding what's in the game, I, I just, I usually decide on what the key points are of the game, you know, not even knowing what they are. I just, I actually just, I, I create the map design and then I put markers of like, this will require item one, this will require item two, this requires item three. Um, and I put those little notes around without having decided on what those items are that you need. Um, and so then, you know, there might be, I don't know, like, 15 to 20 items that you absolutely have to have and then a bunch of more things that are optional um and uh it's it's sort of like i think of those things that you have to have first uh and then the optional ones are more like as i find that i have time to put them in there i start putting them in um you know and i by that i mean like all the extra weapons that you have in axiom verge one um like, I think when I made them all, I just sat down for like a month and just made like 20 different weapons, you know, one after the other and didn't stop until I had them all. Um, and Axiom Verge 2 was a little bit more like, like, oh, I have some time, like I'll make a new type of axe. Um, you know, they, they were more involved because the character, you have to animate uh, the the motions for all the characters, uh, each of their actions. So it takes longer it's more intensive to make a new weapon in Axiom Verge 2. Um, I guess another thing I can say about it is uh, like you, you have to keep in mind like your characters um, like health and power and how much what the maximum is you want it to be um, and like how many how much you want one unit to be worth and that that affects how many you find. Uh, because if I'm like, you know, the maximum power is, you know, the character can have like 10 uh, segments of health or whatever that comes out to be like a hundred, you know, 10,000 health or a thousand health. Um, and I just see, decide that each one of those things is a hundred, then it means I've only got 10 in there. But like for the skill tree, it's actually this kind of like uh, exponentially increasing thing as you like add more and more skills to your skill tree. Um, so in Axiom Verge 2, it wound up that to have these little skill nodes that you find, uh, there had to be a lot more of them than there were like health nodes or power nodes in Axiom Verge 1. Um, and that was kind of like just dictated by the skills that I wanted the character to have to be able to upgrade to, you know? Yeah. Uh, and like at a certain point, I was like, you know, I really shouldn't make any more skills because it's getting harder and harder to find a place to put each of these hidden nodes, you know, and I, I try to, 
get it so that every room in the game has some kind of purpose to it. But I was like starting to run out of rooms to be like where I'm going to put a hidden thing. Yeah. And as a player, it's also, it, it brings up an interesting question of for somebody who's never played the game before, how do you know where to apply all of those nodes and, you know, would it benefit you to go straight to the the ability to unlock everything? Or if you get to those areas, you need a lot of extra life anyway. So do you try to balance it and, and go through each? And I, I don't I think once it, the gameplay switched over to drone, I just um, I just concentrated on filling up all of the, the power ups for the drone side of things and then realized, oh, yeah, I should be able to unlock other doors, too. Let me go back and get some more for that. But it, when you when you planned that out, did you plan like a. You know, if people figure it out, this is the best best path to where to add the power-ups in what order? Or did you just kind of feel like, you know, maybe it'll add a different element of gameplay depending on what people choose? Um, yeah, it was more that I, I wanted to add more options. I was, I, I like the idea of, uh, you know, the, um, like the increasing of your, uh, your hacking ability, um, as like having that be uh, in like direct competition to your like mind real estate of uh, whether you want to do that or the action um, based like damage and and uh, health and whatnot um, because like your hacking could lead you to more skill nodes to like make up for the fact that you you know say that you spend you know like. S- all of your skill nodes on the hacking, you might get some of them back because you did hacking. It allows you to defeat more enemies and open up more of those locked doors that are around and have powerful items behind them. Good point. And uh, yeah, it wasn't that there was an ideal way that I thought people should do it. I just thought it was, it would be fun to give people that option. Um, In some ways people, you know, I guess one of the main complaints people had is the game is too easy. So, I sort of wish it had been like more, more of a a compelling choice uh, for the player. Like, you know, where they're really sweating. Oh man, should I do hacking or should I uh, put my skills in combat? Um, like maybe me, if I had made the combat more difficult. But it is what it is now. It's out there. I'm not sure if calling the game easy is a fair statement. Because there's certainly bosses that are not as challenging as the first, but the exploration and the puzzles and where to go and why to go there is is pretty challenging. And once you get the flow, yeah, but anything once you get the flow of it gets to be much easier, right? Once you've memorized where to go in all of the areas of Super Metroid, the map is very easy, but getting there isn't. So I don't know if I agree with it, calling it an easy game, but it's certainly exploration-focused, not battle focused and if you don't like that you know that's that's subjective maybe people just would prefer having a a game where you blast everything in front of you which i love those too i just (laughs) you know i kind of like how this one fell into place um the other thing about the game that really impressed me is i often judge a game by how much i have to cheat and one of the things that, and you know, everybody's different. If you're used to certain types of gameplay, you would already think of it. But there was uh, Twilight Princess, I think, where you aim uh, the controller at the the skull above one of the doors, and you're supposed to twist the controller around really fast to make it dizzy. I never figured out how to do that. I had to cheat because I was moving it around, going, you know, what's what's happening, and I never realized you got to move it really quickly. And the only thing I had like that for for Axiom Verge Two was I accidentally skipped past one of the cut se- or one of the the text scenes after I got a new, um, I think the grapple for the drone. And I didn't realize mm-hmm. how to how to attach on to something. You have to hold it down. And I, once I looked it up, I felt really stupid. So I was like, oh man, I should have been able to figure that out. But that was it. That and there was one section that I kept not running to the bottom of the screen where there was just an open cave to another section. And for whatever reason, my eyes never thought, hey, try looking down there. So I looked at um, a playthrough and saw it, but... I guess the point of me rambling with that is that both of the things that I felt like I needed to cheat on were totally my fault. Whereas there's a couple of games where 
I've looked things up before and go, how the hell would I have ever known that? Where was the clue? I mean, this is like old NES style of confusing, and I definitely didn't get that. There were I was stuck real bad in the first Axiom Verge to the point where I had to, I did not want to cheat, so I walked away, I came back a couple days later, and then I realized it was one of those things like with two where I just, you know, missed a path. But that... I can't imagine how challenging that must be because as the developer, you know where everything is. So what kind of challenge is it and how did you try to make it flow the way that it did so that people could just find their way eventually without, you know, without having to go uh, through? Yeah, it's d developing it is kind of like playing through like a maze yourself um, because, uh, yeah, like that, that, that kind of like funneling the player to the place where you, where you want them to go. Um, that's, I think pro for me, that's like the hardest part of, of level design. Um, especially with Axiom Verge two, where there's the two worlds and they overlap. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, that was, that was incredibly difficult. And, um, I, I don't know if I really have a, like advice for how to handle that other than like, you know, I, ha I have have a lot of tricks where I try to make it obvious to the player they want to get there. So, like, I'll put uh, I'll put like a, a non-essential bonus item like in view of the player. Like, you know, um, anytime when someone was playtesting the game, they were like, "I didn't know what to do." When I find that, like, it was just that they never, you know, went to the upper left of a room or something like that. So I'd go and put like a glowing flask or something in, in that part or uh, put like an actual like light object, like, you know, shining the light on something that I wanted the players to see. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a difficult thing, you know? And I think the map for Axiom Verge 2, because I made it so that the whole thing can be filled out, it introduced a lot of problems for me and that's, um, you know, now, now the map is basically one big, uh, like entity as opposed to most Metroidvanias where it's like, uh, a bunch of little hallways surrounded by black. Um, so you, so it made it less easy to tell like what things connected to which and which ones were actually blocked off. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I, I had a lot of work trying to do that. I don't think there's an easy explanation for how to make it work yeah well it, it did so it was pretty impressive now when you were saying things like you were putting visual cues in the room one one weird problem i have is i'm a very strange type of color blindness i've taken the test a million times i always rate the same thing and so like the crayola 8 looks i could see that perfectly you know i, I could see red and blue and all that i'm not the standard color blindness and it actually oddly helps when I'm doing the retro gaming stuff because limited color palettes, I tend to see sharpness better. So, you know, it helps for what I do for a living, but when I'm playing modern games, very often I, I'll i get to a part and I'll have such a hard time navigating the screen. And I didn't, there were like a few very small things, but I, I was impressed overall about how the color palette was used in a way where it was it was nice. It looked good. It wasn't simple by any means, but I didn't really get that sense of what the heck is in this room. Is this my color blindness messing with me? Um, did, is that something that, that you took into account at all? Are, are you slightly colorblind and that's why you're able to make it safe for colorblind people? Or uh, No, I'm, I'm, I'm not, but uh, I did try to make it so that, you know, the, it, the game was more, um, reliant on the shapes of things um as opposed to the color that they were um and i also tried to make more use of light versus dark in signaling to players what is significant and what is not so like the higher contrast brighter things are usually the things that you should stand on or you can interact with whereas like the low contrast darker things are more meant to be background um and uh, I think I did that more than I did with Axiom Verge one. With then I, I did that more in Axiom Verge two than Axiom Verge one. That makes sense. The um the the teleport command too between uh or the aspect of it that allows you to go between them. 
um, was both really handy and sometimes did make certain sections a little easy because you don't have to hunt back through. Uh, was that always the plan for the second one or was that something that you kind of just decided as you went? Um, I'd say I was like a couple of years into development. Um, and uh, like I had originally thought like maybe I'll have an upper half to the world and lower half and you can like teleport between them. Um, but then at some point I was like, well, maybe the thing that I do instead of the secret worlds can be this other, this other second layer world. Um, and so from the, from the time that I was actually like programming the game on, um, I had always had that, that two worlds mechanic built in there. Um, I didn't, like initially, I didn't realize how confusing and difficult it could be to do it. So like in my first go around, um, you would get more of the the alternate world traversing abilities sooner. Um, but that meant that you could teleport out of the, uh, the breach world um, and into the wrong spot or into a place where it would take you a really long time to get back to where you were. So uh, I kind of had to revise it to, to like do a pretty slow buildup of getting the abilities to traverse into the breach and out um, and uh, like giving you the ability to, you know, in a way you think of like, Oh, I can drag the portals wherever I want, but that's actually like, a concession to not being able to just enter the breach at any point you want, you know? So the portals are there to restrict where you can enter and exit the breach and make it less likely that the player is going to, um, put them in a spot where it takes them forever to get to where they need to be or get soft locked somewhere. That makes sense. And that also, now that I think about it, the ability to, to, to um, teleport between the different save points came about the same time as when you could exit the breach at any time. And I could now that makes sense because there were a few times that I probably exited to a spot that I wouldn't have been able to get out of if I didn't have yeah. that. But it was mostly it was mostly not like that because a few times I, I tried to make it a point to not do that unless I had a, a distinct goal in mind. Like, oh, I, I just spent 10 minutes running across the wrong side of the map. Let me go to the other one. I, I like, just you know, no right or wrong. I just personally liked to walk through to see all right, you know, I got extra stuff. I'm getting used to this new game mechanic. What else could I find? Is there a different section of the room? So I found myself bouncing back and forth between save points with the auto teleport a lot less, but I did jump in and out of the breach as much as I could just to kind of see what other sections I can get to and what wasn't just required to, to progress in the game, but what could I, how could I manipulate that to get that extra item or to get all those, uh, you know, the extra stuff. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I just thought of um, that made it more complex was that in the beginning of the game, when you throw your drone and you have like the drone is a separate character from the player, I had to like really work hard to make sure that when the drone got through traveling in the breach, it came out in a place where they were nearby the body of the character. Yeah. Um, and that was, and there were like bugs and stuff where you would die in, in the breach and then like, somehow end up in like some save point like way before like whatever the player last saved is the drone like in another part of the world that was not the same place they saved when they were the human um and yeah that was that was really uh challenging to get that to work and took a lot of trial and error hmm. I remember when the game first launched, you had released a bug fix for it almost immediately. Um, but I was actually moving at the same time that the, the game was released. So I first played it after, you know, the, the patches. Um, what were the... Uh, and I'm sorry if you've already pu posted publicly about this or something, but what were the, the fixes that you implemented? And you made a comment about Nintendo taking a lot longer to implement their patches and upload them. Um, could you talk a little bit about what that's like for any India dev out there that might be about to go through the same thing? Um, yeah, uh, I'm opening up my Visual Studio so I can see what I put for the patch notes. Um, the patching system is it's completely different on different platforms. Like um, 
Steam and Epic Games, like they they totally don't care what you do. You could you could put in a patch that breaks everything, and it it doesn't matter to them. You know, like you'll find out because people will be mad at you right away. Um, <clears throat> but uh, you they won't uh, do like quality control on on your game or anything. Um, uh, Sony has a thing where like your first submission of the game requires the full QA process. And then patches that you do after that um, can be done, like can be approved in like a half hour or something really quick like that. Um, But uh, for Nintendo, it's, it seems almost as if every patch needs to go through the whole QA process. So, um, you know, it can be a couple of weeks uh, like even if you feel like you did something simple, like at the moment, uh, I, I broke the Russian language, um, translation of Axiom Verge one, and I'm waiting for them to approve. I've been waiting for, I don't know, like at least a week for, for that to go through. And, uh, all I did was to fix it was to change, uh, the bitmap file that has the Russian characters on it. Um, and it, so it's like to approve that one file, they still need to like play through the whole game, make sure the whole game works. Jeez. And that's uh, the QA testing that they do. They don't force you to do that and submit the, the results. They do it themselves. They, they do it. Yeah. They want you to do it too. Um, but yeah, they, they do it themselves. So uh, it's, you know, I, I, it probably contributes to, you know, the, uh, the like mind share of Nintendo being higher quality, but it also makes things take longer to get fixed when something does go wrong. All right. So I'm trying to, where I put my, uh, let's see where I put the patches. I only asked about what changes were made because I didn't run into a single bug in the entire game. And I've played plenty of, of games on the switch that were just, I mean, I forgot which game, Owlboy, I think, crashed, like, every five minutes. Like, crashed, crashed, not just small little bugs. And I didn't get that at all with either. Actually, with all all three playthroughs, I didn't find any bugs in any uh, of the systems. I did. I mean, I did have uh, a number of people playtesting the game before, you know, like speedrunners um, that had worked on the Axiom Verge 1 randomizer. Uh, and they're pretty thorough uh, when it comes to finding things that halt the game. They won't let you know if they find something that lets them speed run it faster. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, things that could affect most players, um, they, they tended to find that out. And there's some bugs that I just didn't fix because they amuse me. Um, so let's see. Uh, there was, yeah, there's a soft lock. Um, where if you, uh, like, I guess when you're underwater, there was a soft lock that you could make a jump and end up in a place that you can never get out of. Um, uh, there was a place where if you run out of nano points, um, there was no way to, uh, be able to like blow up the bricks that are like locking you into a certain area. And, uh, there were some issues with the animation where the animation would like go nuts um, after a certain point in the game if you never like saved and restarted. And I fixed those on the first day it was out. Um, or I had them fixed for the first day it was out. Uh, I don't know if... I think it probably took a while for that to get approved. Um that's cool. It's funny because uh, some so, older games, I distinctively remember finding bugs like that where it's like, well, I guess I got to hit reset because I'm stuck here or, you know, I guess I got to go back to the last save point or something like that. So it's the, you know, a very big advantage of modern stuff is being able to have that. And um, do you know if the, the physical editions, I'm assuming, will have the very latest version of the game, correct? Uh, Yeah. Yep. 
Um, I'd like to talk about that for a minute too, because uh, I you have a couple of really nice physical versions of the games. I loved the um, multiverse edition of the original one, and Limited Run Games has a bunch of different packages <coughs> of everything from that Super Collector's Edition with the the vinyl audio and you know and, and all of the different stuff, the tchotchkes in there, all the way to just a very basic copy of Axiom Verge one and two on on a single disc or cart or something like that. Um, you know, what's your thoughts on physical media versus digital, you know, the whole preservation aspect on all of that, or do you not really have an opinion? Um, I mean, it's like, I think it's cool for me. It's more about like, uh, just, um, you know, like that nostalgia of being like, oh, like this is like when I played games as a kid and, you know, they came in a box with like a map and, an instruction manual um, and, uh, you know, maybe some other stuff for me to like kind of like toy toy around with and, you know, like fantasize about, about the game world uh, before I even play it. Um, But it's not something like, I don't buy a lot of collector's editions on my own, you know? Um, I do like it, like getting the stuff, that comes with collector's editions for Axiom Verge one and two, because then I get to have it too. <laughs> and like, you know, I, I get little toys and stuff that I can put on the shelf that look cool to me. Um, uh, I think it's good that people, that there is a, you know, there's a number of people all interested in preserving games and making sure there's a physical version of things because, you know, who knows what's going to happen to Steam and the PlayStation Store uh, and uh, the Nintendo Store, you know. Um, is that stuff going to disappear? Um, and am I going to have to keep on making new versions of Axiom Verge for future platforms because they're no longer backwards compatible with the previous one? <sighs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I kind of wish that there was some kind of like central repository of games where the game was like always there for all time. And you bought it once and you owned on everything. Uh, maybe someone will come up with a way to make that happen, but uh, it's not there yet. Yeah, I agree. You know, I, I have such mixed feelings because the ease of digital games is so awesome, but you know, once a platform goes down, it's gone forever. And you know, I, I know a lot of uh, dirty pirates and I mean that in a nice way who, who, rip and archive all of this stuff and they don't share them and they sure as hell don't sell them. That's just, that's not even a gray area. That's just a giant piece of crap. We'll do that. But, but it's, it's kind of a weird thing because you archive all of this stuff. And when do you feel like it's okay to share? You know, if it's, if you're sharing an Atari 2600 ROM that hasn't, you know, the cartridge hasn't been made in 40 years, it's kind of a good thing. You know, the world, the word gets out there more people talk yeah. about it. it. You know, if somebody wants to make a new digital edition, you know, they could do that. Right. And now there's more people with interest, but I sure as heck wouldn't want to see a ROM of Axiom Verge 2 pop up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There was a time um, in like the late nineties, early two thousands when it didn't seem like uh, publishers really cared about like ROMs or weren't really doing anything about it. And there were ROM sites that were basically like giant library encyclopedias uh, with like reviews and descriptions of like every single game ever made. And you could just like look at them and be like, Oh, this looks cool. And like download it and play it for free. And, uh, and that was amazing. And I feel like uh, it's, it's kind of a shame that that's, that's gone like for, you know, particularly for like older games that like no one's ever going to play again unless it exists in that form. So I don't know. I I hope somebody comes up with a solution that's elegant and isn't something that can be taken down for legal reasons or uh, because they just aren't profitable enough anymore. Yeah. And I hope the digital versus hard copy thing somehow 
there's a better solution for that too because in the situation of this so if you buy the hard copy of it it's going to have the bug fixes implemented but if you bought a brand new game that, that was released in stores on day one and there's been five patches over the lifetime of the game 10 years from now if i pick up a switch plug in the game the only option i might have is the original buggy version without any of the fixes which sometimes could be right. good sometimes could be bad i just i wish there was some way to get around that i also wish there was some way respectfully i don't mean anything bad by this but that i wish there was some way i didn't have to buy the game twice because i totally want a hard copy of the game so I, I but that's exactly what i'm doing i bought it directly from the nintendo shop and then i just pre-ordered through um limited run games as well Right. Yeah. Yeah. There isn't really a good, you know, uh, you know, maybe there could be a, something that someone makes a central repository, a Carfax for games, and you can see who owns the VIN of your particular game. And uh, like once you have that VIN, now you own all versions of it. I think, you know, that's for someone else to to work out how that is going to happen. I'm all for it, though, if it does. Yeah. Um, this might be kind of a more general and stupid question, but if somebody has the digital download on PlayStation 4 or Switch and they buy the physical version and plug in the physical version, will they get their access to their old save files or will the physical version create a different save game? Uh, it, it'll be the same same files. Uh, the, the thing that's different is um, uh, when the publisher is different, and that's, that's what happened with the Badlands um, version of of the switch because it was published by badlands it's actually got a different uh like skew number to it so um the physical axiom verge one and the digital axiom verge one um weren't compatible but the new physical axiom verge one that we're making now uh should be compatible with all the digital axiom verge ones okay so that's cool that's uh i'm, I'm glad that that you guys put some thought into that because that was that was the only other thing that would have frustrated me and it, it makes sense um as far as all the extra stuff that comes in these collector's editions how much of a uh, like how big of a role do you play in what stuff is included and what they come up with and or is it just you know your uh, distribution place says hey here, how about how about this idea would you like us to throw this in for you um Oh, we base we have meetings like with like limited run. Um, uh, you know, Jeremy Parrish is uh, like my my contact over there. Who basically like together with him and Dan Edelman, we decided everything that's going to be in those collectors editions. I mean, they're they're the experts in that kind of thing, like as to like what people want and what's going to be the most popular. Um, so you know, we we listen to them, but then. You know, there there are suggestions. Like it was my suggestion, we have a shadow box uh, in there because I like shadow boxes. Um, and uh, you know, and like I, I really wanted there to be um, like a, like a double sided map or something with two maps in it. So like that's going to be in there. Um, and then there's things like that I had never heard of before, but like limited rum was like, oh yeah, Chirashi. Uh, it's, you know, this, these like little, uh, letter sized, like posters that, you know, are really popular among otaku, I guess. Um, and, uh, so, so that, you know, that those ended up in there and they look really cool. Um, yeah. And like everything that they do, I, I didn't design anything new for it myself, but everything they designed, they like showed to me and like, I gave them my, you know, approval or said like, like, oh, like, you know, this part looks weird. Like, you're looking at Trace from behind instead of the front. Like, can you get the artist to make a version of him from the front? And they go back and they change that. That's pretty cool. So that's good. It doesn't it doesn't all fall on your shoulders to, to try to figure out how to manufacture, you know, all those little different things. It's, it's good that it's kind of a, a team like that. And I actually know Jeremy pretty well, so uh, he seems like a good person to be put on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would, I would think he's also very into like the capture, uh, like scene, like the the RGB CRT, like you know hookups and getting everything to come out perfectly clear for his, you know, he does a lot of those those videos. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, so at the end of the game, 
it kind of was a teaser that there's going to be a third game, possibly. Is that something that you've talked about? Have you decided if there's going to be an Axiom Verge 3, or did you kind of just leave it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there pretty much has to be a third one to like have the first two make any sense. Uh, so, you know, we'll see if, if I have the throughput to do that immediately, or if I need to like take a break and make another game, but uh, it's safe to assume that I'm going to be working on Axiom Verge 3 at some point. That's pretty cool. Do you have any anything in mind? Anything? Any differences? A different look? You know, a different idea? Or is it just still like all uh, on the table? Um, it's kind of like all on the table. You know, um, I, I'm thinking uh, the third one might have more of a maybe a survival horror feel to it um, than than the second one did. Um, uh, not because people were asking for something darker, but just because that's what I, I feel like fits into the story that I've got. Um, but yeah, like everything else is kind of, it's up in the air until, uh, you know, I'm in, I'm basically like, what do you call it? Like pre-production or discovery phase. I'm trying to figure out what I even want to do. Yeah. And hopefully by that time the Switch Pro will be out and you could have it scaled directly to 4K like the other versions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that 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 would be neat. You know, well, hopefully there is a Switch Pro and those are not just rumors. Yeah, yeah, I think my um, I think Nintendo really is capitalizing on the portable aspect of it, which is I understand because I think that's a giant part of their user base. But I love just playing on a TV and I almost never connected. Yeah. Like I, I was just playing before just to just to kind of reimmerse myself in the game before we talked. And I think that's the only time I've ever played Axiom Verge in portable mode ever was just now kind of walking around, mm. you know, listening to the music, getting a feel again. So. Yeah, yeah, it uh. I would definitely like it if it would be backwards compatible with the current Switch, whatever their next thing is. Uh, and even better if you could up-res Metroid Dread and whatnot to 4K, Zelda in 4K. That would be nice. Yeah, you know, Metroid Dread looks so good, but at the same time, all I could see is like, wow, this isn't, you know, this doesn't feel like a brand new thing that I should be playing on a 4K OLED TV. Like, it's a gorgeous game, but I wish it was out in 4K just so, just, you know, not that it would make the game better, but it certainly would, would look a little bit cooler. Right, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, it's just one of those things that makes you happy to see things in the, you know, crispest, cleanest way they can look. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This was awesome. Uh, I was really excited to get to talk to you. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be buying all the games that you make. So maybe we could have this chat again uh, when Axiom Verge 3 is coming out. <laughs> all right. Awesome. Yeah, I look forward to thank it. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, I will leave links to where to follow you on social media, as well as, of course, where to buy the physical editions of Axiom Verge 1 and 2. Uh, and as far as digital editions at the moment, it's uh, PC, Switch, PlayStation 4 with PlayStation 5 coming probably in 2022, right? Yeah, like, I, I, it would really be awesome if somehow it could be out in 2021, but we're in October now, so I, I think it's unlikely for that to happen. Cool. Well, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it, and, uh, and please, please don't stop making these awesome games that we all love. All right, thank you so much.